Uh, welcome, everyone. We are back with Rabbi Silver for the Torah and Haftorah readings of Rosh Hashanah. Um, this week, we're going to continue with our study of the Torah readings of Rosh Hashanah. Um, and yeah, um, you all, I assume we're familiar. You can put questions in the chat, which I'm happy to relay for you, or you can, we're going to pause for questions, and you're welcome to raise your hands and ask them yourselves. Uh, okay, thank, thank you very much. Good to be back here. Um, Okay, so let's continue today with the Torah reading of the second day of Rosh Hashanah. I'll, I'll pause every so often and for questions or comments. Uh, people have questions, as uh, Chaya said, either in the chat or just unmute yourself and speak up. Um, the Torah reading for the second day of Rosh Hashanah is the story of the Akedah, which is chapter 22. And as I mentioned last week, the Gemara says that the first day we read chapter 21, and we have to remember that in the Mishnah, in any event, Mishnah's and in ancient Israel and in the Torah is one day of Rosh Hashanah. So it actually sounds like the primary reading for Rosh Hashanah is chapter 21 as opposed to chapter 22. It's possible that they read both chapters, but we'll never know that one way or the other. But it sounds like Hashem Pokadat Sarah is the primary reading, and the secondary, the secondary reading is the story of the Akedah. Now, having said that, that the Akedah is not the primary reading, but secondary, uh, I do want to point out that it may be secondary in terms of the Torah reading, but the Akedah figures very prominently in the service of Rosh Hashanah, in the davening, because the Akedah appears, actually it's mentioned, in a very central place in the service, which is in the middle of the three blessings. There's the special blessings of Rosh Hashanah, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, that we're studying, I'm teaching it on Sundays, but Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, the, set, the middle one, which is called Zichronot, and the day of Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembrance. So that particular blessing, the way the blessings of Rosh Hashanah work, is that there's a each blessing has a sort of a set of statements, a body of statements, and at the conclusion, and supported by various biblical verses, and at the end of it, there's like some kind of request or some kind of petition. So the the the, the tenth verse appears in the in the petition. So the petition on Rosh Hashanah in Zichronot is Zacharenu b'Zikaron God to remember us for good. And then we continue to say in that petition of Zichronot and Yom HaZikaron, and God, the same way Abraham uh, was able to overcome his, his fundamental quality of, of doing, of, of kindness, and he overcame that to do your bidding, so too, God, should you overcome your fundamental nature. The seal of God is truth. So your fundamental nature and act, act, and act kindly with us. Um, and the, the very end of the blessing, and God remember the story of the story of Akedat Yitzchak. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. So Akedat Yitzchak <laughs> actually occupies, I would say, a central role in the davening of Rosh Hashanah. I think it's fair to say that if we have to pick out one person around whom we can say Rosh Hashanah centers, it would probably be 
be uh, Avraham. And the story that the uh, prayers mention specifically are, uh, is the story of Akedat Yitzchak. And not only that, that's in terms of the classical text. Those are the main blessings of Rosh Hashanah. Then there are other add-ons to the high holidays that even though from a technical standpoint are not really central at all. So for the Ashkenazi community, I think it's fair to say that for the Ashkenazim amongst us, I presume as most of us listening today, uh, the poem, Unisana Tokev, occupies a pretty central role in the, uh, in, in the service. That, I, for many people, consider that to be, no doubt, from an emotional standpoint, the highlight, or certainly one of the main highlights of Rosh Hashanah and, uh, and uh, Yom Kippur. That's for the Ashkenazim. But for the Sephardic community, for the adult Mizrach, they have a different highlight, I would say a different poem, that for them is probably the highlight of their service. <coughs> and that's the poem they recite on Rosh Hashanah in any event, before they blow the shofar. And the poem they recite on Rosh Hashanah, and there are many different tunes for it, chants and tunes, it is time for the gates of the gates of Ratzon, uh, of God's benevolent will, I would say, to be opened. That's the poem, and the, the subject of the poem is the uh, is the Akeda. The tagline of the poem is famously Okeda Nekad Vamizbeach. Okeda Vanekad Vamizbeach, very powerful, is a poem that describes Akedat Yitzchak, and it's, it's very interesting in and of itself. It's worth a, a study in and of itself. But the point is that's their highlight. So the sounding of the shofar, which often is a ram's horn, and it reminds us of the ram, the Akeda. So the, um, for the Sephardic community, that's their highlight. So Akedat Yitzchak obviously plays a central role in terms of the service. But in terms of the Torah reading, it's probably in second place because the primary Torah reading is Hashem Pokalit. So having said that, bottom line is we do read the Akedah on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. So let's spend this time that we have together to uh, focus on the story of Akedat Yitzchak. And we could ask the question, of course, why do we read Akedat Yitzchak on, on Rosh Hashanah? What is it about the, the story that bears any connection to the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. So I have a couple of suggestions to make about that. I think the best way is to simply start with chapter 22, Akedat Yitzchak. I'm sure it's familiar to all of us, but there's always something new. So the story of chapter 22 begins, and I'll take any comments or questions you may have. I'm happy to, to hear them. The chapter begins with the verse, and time will not allow a full exploration of the Akedah. But the first verse is, after these things, God, the Hebrew is Nisa, which is typically translated as tried or tested. And Nisayon is a test. God tested Abraham. And God said, Abraham, God called Abraham. And Abraham's response is one word. Hineni. Hineni is a contraction for Hinei Ani. I am present. I am present means, yes, I'll do whatever you want, even before you tell me what you want. I am here for you. That's Hineni. 
So the Torah describes what's about to happen as a test. And it tells us that it takes place after these things. Here the English, I said, sometimes afterwards. And the question obviously is after what? What is, it, what is the Akedah connected to? Most, uh, most, what is the most powerful connection? The text that precedes the Akedah that is most powerfully connected to it. When I, I've taught the book of Breshit in the past, I made the point that there are, four, there are four options over here and they're all true. It's not one or the other. There are connections to four different uh, texts that appear earlier in the book of Breshit. The Rashi understands that the story of the Akeda is tied in most directly with the story of uh, Abraham's other son, the one he sent away, Yishmael. That's the story of the previous chapter. That's the story of the first day of Rosh Hashanah, I argue, and that's part of the connection to Rosh Hashanah. The cries of this child, which God hears, even though the child doesn't seem to be crying, but God hears the cry. That's the story of the sending away of child number one, and now in chapter 22, after these things, after Yishmael has been sent away, and Isaac's the only one left, that God will test Avram by saying, take your son, your only son, in the next verse, the one you love, Yitzchak, and bring him up as a sacrifice. And Rashi makes that connection. And Rashi notices many, many other literary links between the story of Yishmael on one hand and the story of the Akedah on the other. That's Rashi's understanding. The simple reading of the Torah though, I think, not that Rashi of course has a very powerful argument given all the literary links to the Yishmael story. But after these things, most logically, I think we could all agree, should follow what, what appears just before. And the story that immediately precedes the Akedah is not the Yishmael story, because that ends in the previous chapter in verse number 21. But in verse 22, the end of the Torah reading of the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we have a different story. That at that time, at that very time, that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, comes out with his general um, to greet Abraham and to make some kind of a, a, a treaty with, 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 with Avram. And he wants Avram to swear in chapter 21, in verse 22, I want you to swear to me that you will deal fairly with me and my and my descendants, according to the kindness that I have shown you. He doesn't spell out what the chesed is, but in chapter 20, we know that he seized Abraham's wife. He didn't know it was Abraham's wife. God informs him and he returns the wife and he gives Abraham some money and he invites them to stay in the land. And Abraham dwells in the land together with Abimelech. And now, uh, he turns to Avram and he wants to make a treaty with Avram and Avram at the end agrees. Avram says to him, I'll make a treaty with you, um, but I want it to be clear 
that the well that I just dug belongs to me. And the well is called Be'er Sheva. Akein Karela Makom Be'er Sheva, Kisham Nishbu Shnehem, and verse 20, verse number 32, Vayichritu Be'er Sheva, they made a covenant in Be'er Sheva. Avimelech goes home, and Abraham in chapter 21, the last verse, last two verses, Vayita Eshel Be'er Sheva, Abraham planted a tree in Be'er Sheva, an Eshel, a tree, and he called out there in the name of the eternal God, Hashem, the eternal God. That's the end of the chapter. Abraham dwelt in the land of the Philistines for a long time. And now, chapter 22, verse number one, after these things, afterwards, God said to Abraham, God tested Abraham, Abraham responds immediately, whatever you want. And then God informs Abraham in the second Pasuk, So take your son, your only one, the one you love, Yitzchak. Go to, as kind of exhorted, go, take yourself. Lechucha, take yourself. And Lechucha, the, the, the term Lechucha appears only one of the place in the Bible, which is chapter 12, the first time God speaks to Abraham. Take yourself. Kasuto suggests, by the way, that Lechucha means take yourself apart from. Leave to leave. Take yourself means take yourself and leave your surroundings. So take yourself, Lechucha, to the lands of Moriah, take this child with you and bring him up as a sacrifice on one of the mountains that I will tell you. That's the command. Avram has already agreed. He said he nanny before he even knew what God is requesting. And this all takes place, we are told, after, let's say, after the previous story, which is very logical. That's how the Rashbam understands it. But now the question is, okay, but what is the connection between them? What is the connection between his covenant with Avimelech his planting of the tree, his calling out to the eternal God and dwelling in the land of the Philistines for a long time. The Rashbam most famously suggested that the binding of Isaac is a punishment for Abraham making a treaty with Abimelech in the first place. God has promised Abraham these lands and Abimelech, the land of the Philistines, says the Rashbam is one of those lands. So Abraham has no right to make a treaty with Abimelech. He shouldn't have done it. And he wants to secure his future by making a treaty with this king. And the Rashbam says, God says to Abraham, you want to secure your future by making a treaty with the king. Are you so sure you have a future? Bring your son, your only son, your remaining heir. There's no, there's no other successor because Yishmael has been sent away and bring him up as a sacrifice. That's the Rashbam's interpretation. Uh, you can take it or leave it. I prefer to leave it, actually. And the reason is, it doesn't feel right to me that this story, which is the culminating story of Abraham's life, the last communication, is a punishment for this supposed sin. It's not clear to me that he's doing the wrong thing in the first place. It strikes me as a very, uh, a very harsh response 
if the problem is the covenant, it strikes me as a harsh response. That's number one. Number two, it strikes me that the reading of the Akedah, which is, as I said, God's last communication, which is underscored by the Lechucha, because the first communication back in chapter 12 was the communication of the Lechucha. So the Abraham narrative is framed in a certain sense by the two Lechuchas, the God's first command and God's last command. So it strikes me that the Akedah therefore should be read not just in light of the few verses that appear before chapter 22, but the Akedah has to be read as a culminating story of Abraham's life, or at least his life as we read in the, uh, in the Torah. So if we don't accept the Rashbam, and yet the Rashbam seems to have a point that the two stories are linked after these things does seem to logically follow what comes just before. So now the question is, what actually is the connection between the end of chapter 21 and chapter 22? So I'm going to make a suggestion as to what the connection is. And um, the suggestion is the following. Abraham, in Abraham's life, the first command was Lechucha. The last command is Lechucha, chapter 12 and chapter 22. In chapter 17, the middle chapter, begins by God saying to Abraham, walk before me and behold. Abraham's entire life, actually, if you think about it, is a life of, of travel. He's basically a nomad. He travels from one place to the next. In the Chumash, is traveling to different places. It's not just traveling, but traveling to different places is a precursor to possessing the land. It's a kind of symbolic acquisition of the land, traversing the land. But that's where Abraham is traveling. Then when you get to the end of chapter 21, which is the end of the reading of the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we are told that Abraham makes a treaty with Abimelech, and Abimelech goes home, and then Abraham plants a tree in Beersheba, an Eshel's tree. He calls, he calls out to God, not just to God, because he called out to God in chapter 12 and chapter 13 in Bethel. But he calls out to the eternal God, to the eternal God. And the last verse, and Abraham dwelt in the land of the Philistines for a long time. And one gets the impression, I think, that after all the wanderings of our patriarch Abraham, he has finally found a place. He's there for a long time. He calls out to the eternal God. He has his covenant, his security from the, from the surrounding neighbors. And he plants a tree. He doesn't build an altar. He builds an altar in chapters 12 and 13. That's when he builds altars. But here is something else. When you plant a tree, trees take many years to grow. So there's a real sense over here that after all the wanderings, he has finally found the place. Beersheba. After these things, after Abraham has made it clear through his behaviors, and after all the wanderings, he's finally found a secure place. And God says to Abraham, pick up and go. Where? To the place that I will tell you. 
that part of the point of this chapter is that the place that God will tell you, the, the sacred place, the chosen place in the Chumash, in the Bible, is the place that God chooses. In fact, in the book of Devarim, when the Torah speaks of when you come into the land and you will establish a temple in a particular place, <clears throat> the term the Torah uses for the temple, the Torah never says where the temple is. It says, It's the place that God has chosen, a place in which God can be found, or God's name, God's presence is there. That's the term the Torah uses more than once. Shem Hashem is often used for the temple, for the Mishkan. It's where God can be, can be seen, can be experienced. Three times in the year, go to the place, right? In this story, in chapter 22, Avram's going to name the place. He's going to go to the mountain that God chooses, and then he's going to name the place Hashem Yireh. Hashem Yireh literally means God sees, but in Hebrew, sometimes the word to see can mean to choose. We have that language in the Mishnah, for example. Ro'ani is divri admon. Ro'ani, I see the opinion of admon means I, I choose it, I accept it, I think it's right. So the first point over here is that the story of the Akedah is about discovery of the sacred place. The first Lechacho was also discovery of the sacred place, but that's the land. But within the land is the sacred place, which Abraham will, will in fact discover. <clears throat> but the sacred place is never the place the human being chooses. The sacred place is always the place that God chooses. So immediately, there's a connection to Rosh Hashanah. Because Rosh Hashanah, we discussed this last week, Rosh Hashanah is all about living in God's world. We had the, first, the Torah reading of the first day, Vashem Pokanet Sarah, and I didn't emphasize this enough last week. I emphasize other things. I want to emphasize a different point now. And that is, Vashem Pokanet Sarah, the story of Sarah and God remembering Sarah, also hold, take, holding her accountable, is a story of the banishment of Yishmael. And Yishmael has to be banished because as long as he's around, Abraham will never see clearly, will never understand that Isaac is the covenantal child. He's not going to see it. Because from Abraham's standpoint, his son, who's your son? Yishmael. That's it? Oh, I guess so too. It was very wicked in his eyes. He's not going to do it. And therefore, God steps in. The story of the first day rush is God stepping in to this family squabble, this very strong disagreement. Sarah says he must go. Abraham says no. He doesn't say no. It's wicked in his eyes. He says nothing. He's not doing it. And God is stepping in. And the point is God has to step in because God's plan, God's decision for how this family is to proceed must happen. And the human being either understands that and goes along with it or resists it and it happens anyway. So chapter 21 is God stepping into the fray. God choosing, God deciding how it plays out. 
And in chapter 22 then, the beginning of chapter 22, is a similar theme. The story of the Akedah is about God choosing, not what you think. You think you found the place, you think it's Beersheba. No, because that's not the place that I have chosen. You go to the place that I tell you to go. So that's one of the very important themes of what are the connections to the previous to the previous chapter. That's one connection. Now let me make a second connection and I'll stop and take comments and questions. The previous chapter, the previous verses, the end of Torah reading on day one is when Abi, King Abimelech comes to Abraham and he wants to make a deal, wants to make a treaty and Abraham accommodates him. After he rebukes him, he says, listen, you're stealing my water. Stealing my water. But okay, let's, let's work that out. Let's make it clear that the wells are mine. And Abimelech makes a treaty with him. That's how the chapter ends. But the story of Abimelech <laughs> is not limited to chapter, the end of chapter 21. In general, by the way, all of the Abraham stories are actually double. They're all double stories, which is interesting in its own right. Abimelech appears not only at the end of chapter 21, he appears with Abraham in chapter 20, and he will reappear in chapter 26 with Isaac. So he's a rather important character. And in chapter 20, that's the story where Abraham travels to the land of Abimelech for no apparent reason travels. And when he comes to the land of the Philistines in chapter 20, he says that Sarah is his sister. That's what he says in chapter 20. Now he said the same thing in chapter 12. And when he said it in chapter 12, Pharaoh grabs Sarah. That's in chapter 12. In the interim, in chapter 17, God said to Abraham, your wife Sarah will bear a child in her old age. And this child will be covenantal. Not Yishmael. At Briti Akim et Yitzchak is chapter 17. So to our utter amazement, I would say, in chapter 20, Abraham travels to the land of the Philistines and unsolicited makes the comment in chapter 20, Achotihi, she is my sister, at which point the king of the Philistines grabs Sarah. Now we're not going to go deeply into that story. But God intervenes in that story. And God says to Abimelech, you better return this woman. She's married. She's a married woman. You got to return her. And Abimelech protests. I didn't know. It's not my fault. You know, he told me, she told me, what kind of God are you anyway? You kill a righteous person like me. And God insists that Abimelech returns Sarah to Abraham. And he does. When he returns Sarah to Abraham, he asks Abraham in chapter 20, what did you see, he says, that you did this thing? What did you see? Why did you do this? To which Avram gives three answers. But we're dealing only with the first answer. And Avram said to Abimelech in chapter 20, let's find that verse. The question is verse number 10 of chapter 20. And Abraham's response is in verse number 11. He says, I saw that in this place, nobody fears God. And they would kill me on account of my wife. 
And by the way, in chapter 26, when Yitzchak finds himself in the land of the Philistines, in the parallel story in chapter 26, and Yitzchak says Rivka is his sister, there the people ask Yitzchak, who is she? She's my sister. And the Torah says he was afraid to say wife. He was afraid they would kill him. And later in the chapter, when Avimel says, why did you do this? Isaac says, because I was afraid. They have, there's no fear of God, and they would kill me on account of my wife. So this phrase, no fear of God, is a phrase that appeared earlier in chapter 20. And the context is, because there's no fear of God, they, says Avram, would uh, kill me and take my wife. Now, in point of fact, whether it means they or whether it means you was a good question, because in each of the two stories, in the first instance, it's the king that takes Sarah, Abimelech. And in the second instance, it's the king who would, would take, he's peering out the window when he sees Yitzhak and Sarah. So it's not whether there's a they over here or it's a you. But the point I would make, the second point, and I'll stop and take comments and then move on, is that what's interesting about the Akedah, and so much has been said about the Akedah, the argument that's been you know, presented by many is that Avram somehow falls short in the Akedah. He should have argued with God. You hear this all the time. He should have, he argues with Saddam. For the wicked Sodomites, he argues. For the innocent child, he doesn't argue? That's the question. So let's leave that out. Yes, he doesn't argue for the child. That's true. I addressed this a bit last week. I can come back to it. But the point is that after Avram is willing to sacrifice Isaac, the angel calls down from heaven and says, don't do it. And that's later in the chapter. Um, it's verse number 12. The angel called down, Avram, Avram, right? Abraham says, Hineni, once again, in verse number 11. In verse 12, do not harm the child. Don't do anything to him. Leave him alone. Nothing. Leave him be. Because now I know, because of your willingness to sacrifice your only child, now I know. Now I know what? Now I know you're a saint. Now I know what? So the Torah says, I know you are a God-fearing person. That's what the Torah says. Because you did this, you are a God-fearing person. It's very hard to argue when you read that verse that Abraham did the wrong thing. It says he's a God-fearing person. Now, who is not a God-fearing person? Who is not a God-fearing person is Abimelech, both in chapter 20, and in chapter 26, where Abraham said, why did you do this? Because there's no fear of God in this place. It would kill me. In other words, what it seems to mean is in 20 and 26, we're talking about the king. King Abimelech in chapter 20, King Abimelech in chapter 26. And not being a God-fearing person strikes me in the Chumash as meaning in this context, you make up your own rules. Whatever suits your purposes, there are no rules. Whatever works for you is what works for you. There are no absolutes because you're the absolute monarch. And Abraham in chapter 20, said to say, speaks the same language as Avimelech. He lives with Avimelech. Avimelech returned the man's wife. She's a married woman. What? 
What kind of God are you? You would kill a righteous person? And it's his, it's his fault. He says, she's my sister. And it's her fault. She said, he's my brother. And I am pure of heart and clean hands. And God says, I know exactly what kind of tzaddik you are. That's why I'm telling you. Because if you return the man's wife, you'll be okay. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. This is not the way God speaks to the tzaddik. So that's the person who lacks Yirat Elohim. Interesting in the Chumash, by the way, much later, when it talks about kingship, so what the Chumash says is that the king is obligated to write a Sefer Torah. The Katavot Sefer HaTorah, the Karabo, and not only to write it, but to read it. And why? Why should the king have to write the Torah and read it, or have it read to him? Uman Yuman Hashem. To learn to fear God. The Torah is concerned about kings. Kings have absolute power. And absolute power is dangerous because people begin to believe they can make up any rules they want or they not have to listen to any rules. Do whatever you please. I'm the king. So that's, the Torah says later in the book of Devarim, no, no. The king, more than anybody else, has to be so careful. And the way to ensure that he'll be careful is if he reads the Torah, he'll understand that the king is an employee of God. God has chosen the king. God allows the king to reign. And therefore, the king has to abide by God's rules. So therefore, that's the second link that we have to Achar Hadvarim to the story of Abimelech. I would formulate it this way. In chapter 20, Abimelech says to God, what are you talking about? It's your fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. Then he turns to Abraham. Why did you do this? Why did you, you almost got me killed. Why did you do this? Or Sita, why did you do it? He didn't actually do anything. But Abimel says, why did you do this? And Abraham says, because in this place, there's no fear of God. And they would kill me on account of my wife. And also, I have another answer. She really is my sister. From my father, not from my mother. I have another answer. We do this every place we go. This is our arrangement. Every time we come to a town, she always says, he's my brother. I always say she's my sister. So he has not one answer, but he has three. It's Abimelech talk. And none of the three are very good. Or let's put it this way, they're all problematic. Yes, it's not a God-fearing place. So why are you there? Who told you to go there? Go elsewhere. Who told you to go to Abimelech? There's no reason to be there. What do you mean that she's my sister for my father, so not my mother? But, she, but she's your wife also. I don't care if she's a fourth cousin, but she's your wife. What do you mean you do it every place you go? What kind of answer is that? So stop doing it. Gemara says, what if you start eating and didn't make a blessing? What do you do? Says the Gemara, what's the question? The person who eats garlic should continue to eat garlic? Okay, you didn't make a blessing. Make it out. What do you mean you did it? What kind of what you precedent? There's no precedent. They talk the same language. What's interesting is that the end of the Torah reading on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, so Abraham says to Abimelech, listen, he rebukes him. You're stealing my water. What does Abimelech say at the end of the first day of Rosh Hashanah? Verse number 29. I don't know who did it. Not, not 29. That's uh, verse number 26. Said Abimelech, I don't know who did it. Vigam. And also, it's your fault. You should have told me. What are you waiting for? I have another excuse. 
I'm just hearing about it now for the first time. We'll take care of it tomorrow. Checks in the mail. It's the same Avi Melech. He has all the answers. Three answers to the question. Why are you, why are you a thief? Why are you stealing the wells? It's a million answers. Whatever seems to work for him. Whatever, whatever it is. You know, it's, uh, I don't know anything about it. You're fault for not telling me. We'll take care of the problem. So the Avi Melech remains the Avi Melech. The Avram's different. Avram rebukes him here. Doesn't speak this, and in the arcade that he breaks for it altogether. So Yerat Elohim, on this reading, and I think the Torah does, does suggest this, means you play by God's rules. Even if God's rules seem counter to what you would do. Even if God's rules seem by your standards not to be the right thing to do. To slay an innocent person. Now, it's not simply to slay an innocent person. I want to make this very clear. It's to bring him as a sacrifice. And furthermore, what is even more clear, I'm not saying this would justify this by our standards today. What I'm saying is that we have to remember that Isaac's birth is actually a miraculous birth. By any normal measure, Isaac is not born because Sarah can't have a child under any natural She's too old. Torah is explicit about this. So in a certain sense, Isaac is actually God's child. It, God is demanding that God's child be restored to God. That's what it comes down to. But it's not about murder. In any event, my point is that one way to read the Akeda, which may be very problematic to us, but I think in learning the Torah, or in fact anything else, the first step is to figure out what the Torah actually seems to be saying. And the next thing is, how do we respond to that? Maybe problematic. There are many things in the Chumash and the Bible that we find problematic. But it doesn't mean the Torah didn't say it. The question is how you respond to it. So that will be a second connection. The first is the chosen place. God determines the place. And the second is we play by God's rules. And that's a Rosh Hashanah. That's what Rosh Hashanah is actually about. It's what kingship is. It's God's world. We are strangers and sojourners in our world. It's God's world. And that's the point the Torah makes on other occasions as well. Ki we are it, God says. Every 50 years, return the land. Wait a minute, why should I return my land? Because it's not your land, it's my land. Gerim v'toshavim atemim modi. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And that's a Rosh Hashanah theme. That's what's unique about Rosh Hashanah. That's, that's, that's mafios. That's kingship. Yom Kippur is different. Yom Kippur, it's about us, actually. I mean, we live with God's grace, but it's about us. It's about repentance. It's about confession. It's about human transformation. That's, that's Yom Kippur. It's not Rosh Hashanah. So those are two suggestions about the connection to the Abimelech narrative that precedes it. Let me stop here, and then I want to have one more suggestion about the story of the binding of Isaac and its connection to Rosh Hashanah. But I'll stop you. Are there any comments or questions? Um, again, everyone's welcome to put questions in the chat so far there are none. Um, and I'm going to give everyone another, everyone who's not yet a panelist, I'm going to once again invite you to be a panelist. That does not mean that you are obligated to talk or anything. It will just allow you to turn on your camera and to raise your hand. So I'm going to make that an option again. And if anyone has any questions, you're welcome to raise your hand.
Um, Jonathan Silverman asks whether these are the only two lechlechas in the Torah. The only two lechlechas in the entire Bible, not just the Torah. The only two. And they, they're, they're the bookends of the Abraham narrative. That, by the way, that's a very important uh, uh, observation about the two lechlechas for, for a different reason, um, which I talk about in my book on Shmuel. And, um, the point is that when in thinking about the Abraham narrative generally, and it's a, it's a lead into my next point, but the thing is stories have beginnings and stories have ends. Let's start with that, right? Beginnings and every story has a beginning and end. And I would say it's fair to say that the beginning of a narrative and the end of the narrative often carry uh, a special weight. They're especially significant, how we begin something and certainly how we end it. So the Abraham narrative is a narrative that is two beginnings and two endings. Because even before the Lechlecha, which is chapter 12, verse number one, but we're told suddenly about Abraham in chapter 11, about his lineage, about his father, about the travel, etc. And then the Akedah chapter 22, but the Abraham story doesn't end in chapter 22. Abraham is in chapter 23, Abraham, Abraham is in chapter 24, and part of chapter 25. So when thinking about the Abraham narrative, where it begins and where it ends, it's a narrative that has two beginnings and two endings. So the way I formulated in the book on Shmuel is that the Abraham narrative, the ideal of it, because there's the ideal and the real. There's the way the world should be. There's the dreams that the dreams that we have about the world. And then there's the reality of the world. So the Akeda is the story in which it becomes clear that in fact, Isaac is Abraham's successor. That's clear because at the Akedah, not only does Abraham call Isaac my son, but the important point is that Abraham actually brings the sacrifice in place of his son. The sacrifice is actually Isaac's proxy. Abraham looked up and he saw the ram behind or afterwards, and he goes and he takes the ram and he brought it tachat instead of his son, so it's what we would call in our halakhic parlance, pidyon abed, the redeeming of the firstborn, the redeeming of the son. And in doing so, it's an act of reclaiming. Yishmael was sent away and not reclaimed, but Isaac is sent away and actually reclaimed by, by Abraham. So it's the story in which it is clear that all the promises to Abraham, the covenantal promises about succession will all take place through Isaac. We knew this intellectually beforehand, but it becomes sort of acted out or enacted in chapter in chapter 22. So that's the dream. The dream has been, that's the ideal. And now the question is, okay, that's the ideal, but, but, but we live in this world, but how do you make it happen? So that's what chapter 23 and chapter 24 are about. Yes, Isaac is the chosen one, but Isaac needs a covenantal partner, just as Abraham needed a covenantal partner with Sarah, Isaac will need a covenantal partner who, who will be Rebecca. And her birth is mentioned at the end of, after the Akedah, the end of the Torah reading on the, first, on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. But how do you find Rebecca? You have to negotiate. You send the, your, your best negotiator with a, lot of, with a lot of capital, with a lot of wealth. He has to talk to Lavan. He has to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to represent what happened or misrepresent what happened, et cetera, et cetera. 
Chapter 23, Abraham wants, wants to buy a piece of land to represent symbolic acquisition of the land. But it's not so simple. You deal with Ephron. Ephron's a slippery character. Can't get into that now. That's the real world. There's the ideal. And then there's the world in which we live. There's the world of falsehood. That's the Alma de Shikla. That's the world in which we live. And you have to know how to, how to live in that world too. How, how do you make the dreams real? That's, that's really the question. The first step is to have the dreams. Let's start with that. But okay, we have our dreams, we have our vision, but then how do you make it happen? How do you get people to understand, either understand what the vision is and buy into it, or support it for other reasons, all kinds of reasons. But the fact is, that is, and those are the two endings of the Abraham narrative. There's the Abraham narrative, which is the, the dream, the ideal, and that's the lechucha. And that's the last communication of God. Uh, and then there's Abraham figuring out how to make it happen. In 23, he negotiates himself. And in 24, he sends his best negotiator. He's too old. He has to, he has to rely on somebody else, which is always dangerous, but that's life. Okay, before I conclude here, yes, Sandra. You're muted, I think. I'm not hearing you, Sandra. Are you muted? Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I think. Uh, I, I, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, is it uh, a, a a demerit, for lack of a better word, is it a demerit if the person, in this case Avraham, fails to, what's the word, recognize the makom? Um, in in any way, would you say that he he? I mean, he surely wasn't ready when God sent him on the second lechlecha. He wasn't ready to see the makom. Um, he wasn't ready to recognize it for what it is. So I guess I'm asking, you know, I mean, David, you know, David chose the Macomb later on in Samuel. You've taught us so many times, and that was a disaster. David had to learn that, you know, God chooses the Macomb, not David. And it's sort of the same lesson for God's chosen that we see uh, repeating for different reasons. So I have to ask, is it a demerit in some way that Abraham here uh, he didn't see it after, after, in other words, this is, what is it? This is Lechelcha Redux. It's the second time a Rambam kind of redoing. And is it a demerit that he doesn't see the Makom? In fact, he well, tries to see the Makom. I, I, I think Abraham does see. He, but he, he, does, sees, he sees very clearly in chapter 22. He's later, he'll see even behind him, you taught us. But I'm saying... Uh, Oh, initially, well, initially, no, initially he doesn't see, of course. Initially, that's the purpose of a test. The purpose of a test, a good test, and I've made this comment many times, a good test, actually, sometimes tests are simply diagnostic, you know, <laughs> but a good test is a test in which you learn. I, I, I'm sure we've all taken many tests in our lives. The only teacher I think I ever had where I could say that after I took his test, I learned something from the test was Rabbi Aaron's uh, Lichtenstein. He actually learned from his test because he gave thought questions on the test, a long thought. It must be how you think. And you really had to think it through. It was based on what you had learned, some new thing you'd never seen before. That was unusual. Uh, a good test is, is, a, is, a, is a teaching. God is testing Abraham. God is teaching Abraham. And I want to make the point, and to me it's obvious, that this great story of the Arcade addresses 
what is the core issue in Abraham's life. The core issue in Abraham's life from beginning to end is succession. We first meet Abraham, he's 75. Who's going to succeed him? He has no children. Who is going to be the spiritual heir to Abraham? That is the core question of the narrative. And the Akedah addresses that question. Yes, it's certainly the case that he has to be tested. He has to be taught because he doesn't really get it. He doesn't understand that Isaac is his one and only true covenantal successor. And not by default because Yishmael is not there. Even if Yishmael were there. And of course, he can't understand Isaac is his true successor because he doesn't understand Sarah's place. He thinks Sarah is actually his sister. That's what he says to the king, and he believes it. He's not lying. Why do you say she's your sister? She is my sister. Yes, I did marry her. But our relationship is brother and sister. That's what he's saying. By that, he means she doesn't share my destiny. When Abraham wants, wants a child, he doesn't say, give us a child. He says, give me a child. Hey, Leo, Isaac prays for Rebecca. Abraham prays for himself. We can explain it a hundred different ways, but that's the reality. But the point of the Akedah is, and in this chapter, he actually can see, and the reason he can see in chapter 22, not just achar, not just afterwards or behind, whichever one of those it means, but he also sees the place in verse number four, he's actually able to see, and I have argued in the past, the reason he can see in chapter 22 is because Yishmael is not there. Yishmael is an obstacle to Abraham's seeing. Once Yishmael's gone, he sees perfectly. But the trick is, and the tragedy of sort, Yishmael is a product not of only his own misbehavior. He's a product of his mother, of his father, and of Sarah, of all of them. They're all contributing to, Yish to Yishmael's state. That's no question. But once Yishmael is gone, Abraham has the ability to see. He sees perfectly well. And he sees the aisle, and this is the important thing about the aisle. God never tells him to bring the sacrifice. He figures it out by himself because he says to himself, God told me to bring Isaac as a sacrifice. It can't be a lie. God doesn't lie. God also said Isaac is the one who will succeed you. That's got to be true. How do we resolve the contradiction? How can you say Isaac is a sacrifice at the same time saying he's going to succeed you? How could that be? Says Abraham, it must be that Isaac's proxy can replace Isaac, that the idea of sacrifice is actually substitution. That in itself is a very profound point about the story of the Akedah and, and the Bible. That's what the Ramban understood it. Sacrifice is it's Isaac. The sacrifice is me. That, that's what Abraham understands. No one told him that. He figures it out by himself. He's a person, I would say the following. He's a person who's able to figure out what the right thing is without being told. And that is actually the ideal. The fact of the matter is, they all this talk about halacha, halacha, halacha. The fact of the matter is, I'm not opposed to halacha. Very good. But the fact of the matter is that most decisions in life, and actually all the important ones, there is no book for that. You show me a shulchan which tells you how to deal with the important, real big questions in life. What do I do with my life? What do I work? Whom do I marry? Where do I live? Where's the Shulchan Aruch? And a hundred thousand other things. Now, the sends us in a certain direction. That is true. But the point is to be able to arrive at a place 
you don't need to be told. You can intuit the right thing. To develop a divine an, an intuition of, a, of what God demands of me. That is, I think, the ideal. And that's what Abraham accomplishes at the Akedah. It doesn't have to be, God doesn't speak to Abraham anymore. It's the last time God communicates. Not, as some people would say, and I would add quite foolishly, because God's angry at Abraham for not arguing with him. There's zero evidence of that at all. No, it's the opposite. God doesn't have to command him anymore. He knows exactly what to do. He's got it all worked out. Now he has to make it happen. Not a simple thing. He's an old person. He can't travel, et cetera, et cetera. You deal with Ephraim, you deal with love on Got to figure it out. But he's able to intuit what's right. And that's the point of the Akeda. And that's the goal. The goal is to be able to figure it out without a book. Because at the end of the day, the big decisions, there are no books. Big decisions are, you've got to be in sync. That's what it is. It's being in sync. So yes, God is directing Abraham. God is, we all need teachers. They send us in a certain direction. And then we're on our own, essentially. We make all kinds of decisions. You make good decisions and bad ones, but we make those decisions and Abraham's able to see what, what, what is not obviously seen, whether it's far away, whether it's behind them, whether it's afterwards, whatever it means, he's able actually to see. And that's a very important point. Let me make one final comment about the Akedah and its connection to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, and we say this in our prayers, after we bowl the shofar, we bowl the shofar many times on Rosh Hashanah, we bowl the shofar inside the Amidah, three times the blessing of Malchiot, Zichonot, and Shofarot, and then there are two little paragraphs, two little statements we make after we bowl the shofar. One of them is the Areshet Svatenu, very beautiful prayer, we ask God to to hear, to hear our prayers or to understand our desires, right? God listens carefully. God knows what we want, perhaps better than we know what we want. But then there's another little prayer right away. Hayom harat olam. Today is the birth of the world. On Rosh Hashanah, we assume the world was created on Rosh Hashanah. It's the Rosh Hashanah. The Torah says it's the seventh month. But in our tradition, it is the Rosh Hashanah. It's the, it's, it is the new year. And we... That's what Rosh Hashanah is. It's the day where God created humanity. Actually, God did not create the world on Rosh Hashanah. The Talmud, the Medrash says God created the world on the 25th day of Elul. But the sixth day of creation was Rosh Hashanah. That day was the day of creation of the human being. And the Medrash says on the day the human was created, the human sinned. On the day the human sinned, the human was judged. So the first Rosh Hashanah was a day of judgment. Hayom Harat Olam. Let me now, in five minutes, uh, make the following observation about the Akedah. After these things, I'll tell you in five minutes, it could be five hours, but I'll keep it to five minutes. The Torah begins with two creation stories, chapter one and then chapter two and three. They are different in many respects. And one of the important differences is this maybe the most important distinction between the two stories. The first story is about a God that creates everything, heaven and earth. It's about a God who, without any effort, creates all, culminating with the human being on the sixth day. But the main character of the story is actually God. God creates everything. There's no opposition. There's no coercion. And there's no effort. It's all done through speech. God is Bore and God is Oseh. 
Then there's a second creation story, which is very different, different description of God. There the focus seems to be on the human being. And there, it's not about creating heaven and earth. There it's about one particular place. Within all of God's creation, there is one place where God interacts with God's creation. God walks in the garden. God speaks to the human. God commands the human. It's a place that God set up for God and the human being to live together. And that doesn't really work out well. That's the story of the snake and the Garden of Eden and the expulsion from Eden. And then, shortly after the expulsion from Eden, there's the story of Noah and the flood. And the world is destroyed and the world is then recreated. Noah is sent out of the ark to recreate the world, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to create or recreate the world. What Noah recreates, actually, is the first chapter of Genesis. The world. God created the world. Shemayim va'aretz. Noah's charge is to go and to repopulate the world, to recreate the world, to redo chapter one of the Torah. What Noah does not do, though, is redo the second creation story. The second creation story is not about the world. It's about a particular chosen place where God and the human can, in fact, interact. That's not Noah. That's the next main character in the Torah. That's Abraham. And he does it in two ways. And those two ways are the two lechuchas. The first lechucha is the sacred land, the land of Canaan the land in which God communicates. God communicates there. God speaks. That's one sacred place. But within the sacred space is a special sacred space, a chosen sacred space. That's the second Lechucha. That's the story of the Akedah. So therefore, when you read the story of the Akedah, actually, I think if you have a, a good reading of the Chumash, you understand that the creation narratives of Genesis do not end with chapter one or two and three. They don't even end with Noah. With Noah, there's a recreated world. What about, what about the Garden of Eden? Now you can never go back to the Garden of Eden, but you can discover an alternative to the Garden of Eden, the sacred place. And that's what Abraham accomplishes in two steps. The first step is chapter 12. The first lechukha, go to the land that I will show you. But the second step, the last step, is chapter 22, the binding of Isaac. The binding of Isaac is, in fact, the culmination of the, of the creation stories. So what better text to read on Rosh Hashanah? Because we celebrate the creation of the world, there's a story of the binding of Isaac. The story of the binding of Isaac, of course, is a recreation of the second creation narrative. And there are actually, of course, of course, whenever you suggest such a thing, the first thing we ask ourselves is, can you show me this in the text? Now, the answer is yes, I can show you in the text. I think I've already charted it out for you, but I want to make one last observation about a, a phrase in the text. The human being was banished from the Garden of Eden for one reason. Because God says the human being has already eaten of the tree of knowledge, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and God said at the end of chapter 3, if you recall, let the human being stretch out his or her hand and partake of the tree of life. Right? And then they will be just like God. Says God. God. 
Humans like one of us, godlike in that the human has knowledge. What if the human will, will stretch out Yishuachia though and partake of the tree of, of, of life and be immortal, they'll be just like God. I don't want the human to be God or even to think the human is God. Human's not God, there's one God and they're God's creations. So the human was banished from Eden to prevent the human from thinking the human could be God. Now we come to the Akedah. And the Akedah is all about the human being understanding the human is not God. Because God can make all kinds of demands upon the human. He can demand my most precious, my most precious child. And Abraham understands that. that God has the right to do it. And Abraham accedes to God's will. And God says to Abraham, because you, you understand that you're a human being, you're not God. Therefore, I afford you the opportunity to enter into a covenant with, 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 with God. Covenant with me. Of course, that's the blessing of the central blessing of Rosh Hashanah, so Kher Habrit. And the point is that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, but an angel called down from heaven. And what did the angel say to Abraham in the story of the binding of Isaac? Al Tishlach Yodchel Anar. Al Tishlach Yodchel Anar is what God says to Abraham in chapter 22. And the reason for the banishment from Eden is so the two things are actually connected. Abraham is spared. Abraham's allowed to, or God rescinds God's command, okay? And in rescinding the command, Isaac then becomes the successor, the covenantal successor. In a certain sense, Abraham becomes eternal. The idea of the covenant is in theory, it could be passed on forever from one generation to the next. So to that extent, the human can be immortal. Human is mortal. But the human is immortal in that sense if the human can find a way to enter into the covenant. But the only way to enter into the covenant is to affirm that the human being is in fact not God. The human being is mortal. What Abraham faces at the Akedah, it's funny, Akedah Yitzhak is never about Isaac actually in the text. It's about Abraham. Because if Abraham sacrifices Isaac, there's no future, oblivion. There's no succession in any manner, shape, or form. So the willingness to accept his own mortality in the most profound sense is what allows Abraham to, in a certain sense, become immortal. So in that sense, the story of the binding of Isaac is most appropriate for Rosh Hashanah, because Rosh Hashanah at the end of the day is we celebrate the creation. But the creation is two creation stories. There's the creation of the world, and there's the sacred space. And what Avram is able to do is to, is to fulfill God's will in the second creation story, not just the first, but the second creation story, the establishment of a place, a place where the human being and God can actually have a dialogue, which is what the Torah calls the place at the Akedah. And Abraham named the place Hashem Yireh, Hashem Yomer Hayom, Hashem where God can, where God can see the human, and the human, in a sense, can see God. It's this place of connection. That's what Avram accomplishes, which is a fulfillment of the creation story of the book of Genesis. So there's no more appropriate reading on Rosh Hashanah than the story of the binding of Isaac. And I would add, it's a very interesting idea in terms of charting out or mapping out the book of Breshi. There's much more to say about that. It doesn't really even end with the Akedah. But the finding of the chosen place, the chosen place, 
is the story of the binding of Isaac. Let's just to recap what I've suggested here about the reading on the second day. That is that the story of the Akedah, its connection to Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a day of God's kingship. It's God makes, God decides. It's God decides how the world is to work. Uh, and the human being's role, I would say, is not to choose the place. Our job is to figure out what God has chosen. The human being's responsibility is to figure out what God wants, what God would want. Either to be able to hear God's word or to figure it out without hearing God's word. So in the story of Abimelech's story, it's the contrast between Abraham and Abimelech. King Abimelech is a king who believes he can do whatever he wants. The rules don't apply to him. That's Abimelech, no fear of God, does whatever he wants. And no, the king in the Torah is the one who understands that he's in God's employ. And that's, Abraham is called in chapter 22, now I know you are a God-fearing man. And the second point was that the story of the binding of Isaac is about the fulfillment, I would say the fulfillment of God's will in, in, in creation. God desired both to create all, but God desired a place through which God can communicate to God's subjects, to the human being. Abraham, in chapter 22, in the binding of Isaac, has discovered exactly such a place. Okay, so I'm gonna stop at this point. Uh, if there are a couple of minutes for comments and questions, I'll take that. We have one more of these sessions uh, in terms of the text, which would be about Yom Kippur. I wanted to discuss then, when we come to it, the Avod of Yom Kippur, the Torah's description of the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur. And we do have many, many other classes, apart from my own teaching on Sunday, we have a lot of extremely interesting, I took all-star line at this level. I encourage everybody to take advantage of it. Okay, are there any comments or questions? Just a couple of minutes. Yes? Yes, speak up. Me, Sandra? Yeah, speak. Oh, would you say, would you say, Rabbi, that um, a key connection then between Root and Abraham is the ability to intuit, to intuit what God wants from her, from Lot, from Abraham. I mean, no one told Ruth to go, uh, yet she says a laugh. Um, and no one, no one told, as you say, no, no one pointed out to Abraham and said, you know, got to do it this way. I would so, say that. I think it's an excellent point. I think that Ruth in general is Abraham's spiritual child. There's no, there's no question. Both in terms of Abraham's two, Abraham's two main qualities are the ability to leave his space and go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And the second quality is the quality of kindness, chesed, greeting the, greeting the strangers, the guests, etc. And Ruth has precisely those two qualities. Mm -hmm. So without question, Ruth is Abraham's spiritual child. And the other spiritual child of Abraham who has exactly the same two qualities would be Rebecca. It's exactly that. Rivka leaves her home uh, and Rivka uh, greets the stranger and gives water to the camels, etc. So those are those two people would be Abraham's spiritual heirs, I would call it. And you're right that in the, in the case of Abraham, God said to Abraham to leave. But in the case of Ruth and even Rebecca, to some extent, there is no direct command. You yes. really have to, Ruth really had to intuit what is right. And she's able to do that, which is, you know, it's a gift to be able to intuit it. Uh, so I would agree with you fully that those are two examples, Ruth and also Rebecca, 
exactly Abraham's qualities and what to say about it. But um, I'll take one more comment or question. Anybody else with a comment or question? Um, Rabbi David? Yes, Ruth? Yes. So um, what you said about the connections between the Akeda and, um, and the story in the Gan, it just answered a question for me, and I, I hope this is what you were referring to. I've always puzzled why Avram's knife is called a ma'achelet. And I, I, people have said things, and I've developed my own things, but now it strikes me that the words on the gan are pen yishlach yado v'lokach v'ochal. Here it's, and then in the in the Akeda, v'yishlach Avraham et yado v'yikach Right, exactly. So that's a very good point. That's a, I would say it. Here's the point. It's an excellent point. It sort of reinforces, which we find all the time. Sometimes you have a good intuition about something and you have three proofs. And typically when you have three connections, you find eight connections. That's just the way it works. That's a sign that we're on the right track. I would just add one detail before closing and that's the following. We cannot return to the Garden of Eden. We never return to the Garden of Eden. And there's the uh, flaming sword that prevents us from entering. Uh, there are the Kruvim, et cetera. And the reason we can't go back to Eden is because Eden is not a place for people that have knowledge. The human being dwelt in Eden and did not have full knowledge, uh, but we have knowledge. So therefore we have to find a kind of alternative to Eden. And that's the challenge actually. Can we have knowledge? We are God-like in a certain sense, but can we understand with all our knowledge the necessity to be fully human? That's, that's really the challenge. So it's got to be the alternative to Eden. That means the place where God and the human can actually communicate. And the place in the Torah is, of course, the land of Canaan. That's the place. And uh, within the land of Canaan, there is a sacred place. And that's where God speaks. That's where God communicates. Um, so that is, you know, but your point is well taken that it's further, further uh, reinforcement of the linguistic links. In, 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 in learning the Tanakh, the first step is typically to see, to see the literary connections. And the second question is, once you see the literary connections, the question is, what do you make of it? And good people can have disagreements about what we make of the connections. But the first step is to find, to see whether the two stories are linked in terms of language. And then we, of course, do our best to figure it out. Um, Okay, so this is the last class we have on, on Rosh Hashanah, but I don't know the schedule. Do we meet next week? We do meet next week. Good. Okay, so Chai, uh, I'll turn it over to you if we have any announcements or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, you said a lot of what I wanted to say, which is that we have really, really exciting things coming up for the Elzman. So please go to l.drishet.org and you'll see all of those really, really exciting things coming up. Um, and yeah, we'll see you next week too. Well, I want to mention one thing, Kaya. I want to mention one other thing, which is very exciting to me. So I've been working on a project, which is which involves the uh, the davening, the prayers, the text of Rosh Hashanah, and uh, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, Niguni. And today I was down once again in the studio, and we completed uh, the the project. So we're going to have six podcasts: three on Rosh Hashanah, three on Yom Kippur. And it's going to be, most of it is actually music. And we, uh, we, Drisha, uh, we have 32 Nigunim, 32, 3 2. 
performed by four, it's, it's instrumental, performed by four artists. I would say I'm very excited about it. Some of the Yigunim you may know, most of them you won't know, I suspect. Say maybe Chaim Kranz will know some of the Yigunim, but I the Chaim. Even the Chaim won't know all of them. And they are quite stunning, actually. Very powerful. And they're different. They're coming from a very deep place. Um, so be on the lookout for the uh, podcast on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I'm very excited about it. And it's a project that we want to really expand. We have to figure out how to do that. Um, but uh, I think it really adds, I mean, song, nigun, chant, it adds a real dimension to our prayers. Uh, I think it's really important. And I find this particular, uh, the sentiment you're being particularly powerful. So um, I look forward to it officially coming out, which should be probably next week. And I hope you will uh, have an opportunity to listen to it and tell your friends about it as well. Okay, just want to put that plug in for the Igunim. Thank you, Rabbi Silver, for this wonderful class. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great week. And see you soon.